This is the Reformed Libertarians Podcast, a project of the Libertarian Christian Institute with Carrie Baldwin and Gregory Baus. We explore free society from a Reformed perspective. You can find us at reformedlibertarians.com. We talk about culture, society, politics, economics, theology, philosophy, worldview, and more, helping those interested in liberty and human flourishing to think about them based in the Reformed faith. This is episode nine. We're discussing objections to non-monopolist or stateless civil governance, part three. I'm Gregory Baus here with Carrie Baldwin, and we'll be talking about the third in a series of four articles written by Carrie. In this article, she addresses economics, social hierarchy, and the question of the state's inevitability. We link to the article in the show notes as always. It's published at the Libertarian Christian Institute's website, libertarianchristians.com, and it's less than a 10-minute read. So you can listen to our first two discussions in this series concerning law and order and the question of the state's legitimacy in episode three, which addresses arguments made by John Locke. And then our second discussion concerning human sinfulness and the question of the state's necessity is in episode five, and that addresses an argument made by James Madison, both of which we will link in the show notes. We plan to have a future episode on the fourth article about imagination or failure of it and the question of the plausibility of statelessness. All four of your articles have a preface, Carrie, saying, while you believe minarchist libertarians who hold to the legitimacy of a minimal or strictly limited state, and anarchist libertarians like us who hold to the need for stateless civil governance can cooperate in pursuit of a free society. Nevertheless, it's worthwhile examining the disagreement between these two respective positions. Before we discuss the main points of this article in more detail, can you give us an overview of what those main points are? Yeah, so there are at least two main lines of argument made by some minarchists and by those who believe a monopoly state is inevitable in a well-functioning society. One of these arguments concerns economics and another concerns social relations. First, I address Robert Nozick's economic argument. Nozick was a philosophy professor at Harvard and wrote the book Anarchy, State, and Utopia, which we'll link to. Nozick is presented by most universities as primary reading on libertarianism, so it's necessary to address Nozick's objections to stateless civil governance. And then second, I address the social argument, this presented by Russell Kirk, who was an independent social critic, and in his statement, 10 Conservative Principles from his book, The Politics of Prudence, to which we'll also link. So let's take these in turn. First, in your article, you explain the economic argument for the inevitability of the state as presented by Nozick. Part of what Nozick is doing in this book is trying to show how it's possible that a monopoly state could hypothetically, in his view, be formed without violating anyone's rights. This is the so-called immaculate conception of the state. Nozick claims that in a possible stateless economy of competing civil governance services, 
most people would naturally seek out the largest, most powerful protection agency available, inevitably leaving one agency with dominance, so he claims. And then he claims that having such dominance would give such an agency the legitimate authority to effectively shut out any market competitors. In response to Nozick's argument, though it's really more a set of unsupported claims on this point, you refer to a chapter by Murray Rothbard from his book, The Ethics of Liberty. We'll link the text and audio of that chapter in the show notes, of course. And Carrie, you highlight a number of Nozick's assumptions that Rothbard shows to be false. What's one of those false assumptions? Yeah, so one of the false assumptions Nozick makes, which Rothbard addresses, is that so-called social contract theories all commit this basic mistake. That is, holding that mere promises are legitimately coercively enforceable. It's true that many promises can be normatively binding in other ways, and their violation can legitimately result in serious consequences. But Rothbard explains that a proper theory of legal contract must be understood as title transfer. This means that the only legitimately coercively enforceable agreements are those that transfer title or ownership of alienable property. One's self-ownership and the rights to person and property which stem from that self-ownership are inalienable and can't really be surrendered in a coercively enforced contract. One important implication of this is that since no one can give up their own will or body or basic right in such a contract, then it is even more certain that no one can legitimately contract away the person's or rights of future generations. And this understanding means that no state can be justified on that basis. In any case, Nozick proposes that competing protection agencies would require clients to relinquish certain rights. However, he fails to consider that nothing would prevent a protection agency from offering services without such a requirement. Right. That alone seems pretty fundamental. Another false assumption Rothbard mentions, which you highlight, is that competing protection agencies would supposedly resort to combat instead of arbitration in disputes. It's really absurd, I think, to suppose that in a society that wouldn't otherwise resort to dispute resolution by combat, that then in a stateless market situation, protection agencies in that society, which depend on voluntary purchase of their services without coercive revenue collection or taxation, it's simply unlikely that they would alienate their clients and needlessly destroy their own resources by failing to agree with other agencies in advance on arbitration services. Yeah. And for some listeners that might raise the wouldn't warlords take over objection to non-monopolistic civil governance as if the warlords haven't already taken over. We'll say more about that in a future episode. And for now, we'll link to the text and audio for a helpful article by Robert Murphy on that question. 
At this point, you mention in your article, Carrie, about agreements between agencies regarding arbitration and appeals and disputes. That leads right into another false assumption by Nozick that you highlight. That's right. Rothbard also brings out the fact that contrary to Nozick's assertion, cooperative agreements and voluntary standardization between competing agencies in no way constitutes institutional merger. For example, the fact that all credit and debit cards are the same shape or that the USB-C is now being adopted by Apple are examples of voluntary market standardization without institutional mergers. So such arrangements between protection agencies wouldn't mean they're one dominant agency. The adoption would occur as a consequence of assent to best practices. Tens of thousands of arbitration agencies, judges, lawyers, and private protection agencies currently exist in the United States. They're in agreement on certain rules, but aren't acting as a unified entity. And as Bob Murphy points out, cooperative agreements between agencies create disincentives to use violence, even if in some otherwise justifiable situations. In other words, use of violence would not likely constitute best practices, so would be employed less, not more. Rothbard also raises historical examples that heavily weigh against the idea that such agencies would naturally result in a dominant agency. Ancient Ireland's non-monopolistic legal system is a well-known example, and we'll have a link with info about that in the show notes. So those are the three responses to erroneous assumptions involved in the economic argument for the inevitability of the state as proposed by Nozick. Let's now consider the social argument as proposed by Russell Kirk and how you address that in your article. Carrie, what's one of Kirk's basic ideas in his 10 conservative principles that relates to this idea that a monopoly state is somehow inevitable in a well-functioning society? Well, let me start off by quoting Kirk's fifth conservative principle, and it reads, Conservatives pay attention to the principle of variety. They feel affection for the proliferating intricacy of long-established social institutions and modes of life as distinguished from the narrowing uniformity and deadening egalitarianism of radical systems. For the preservation of a healthy diversity in any civilization, there must survive orders and classes, differences in material condition, and many sorts of inequality. The only true forms of equality are equality at the last judgment and equality before a just court of law. All other attempts at leveling must lead, at best, to social stagnation. Society requires honest and able leadership, and if natural and institutional differences are destroyed, presently some tyrant or host of squalid oligarchs will create new forms of inequality. There's certainly a number of points there as libertarians we could agree with, but Carrie, what do you say in the article about how this relates to an idea of the state's inevitability? It may not seem entirely obvious on the surface, but here Kirk makes a case for a natural social inevitability of the state among other long-established institutions from what he calls the principle of variety. The idea is this. 
if those who are unequally good and capable of leadership do not effectively exercise that responsibility, then tyrants will inevitably rule and impose unnatural inequalities to the detriment of society. Now, before we get into the details of the response you offer, let me say that after your article was written, you and I further explain the points you make here in the Reformed Libertarianism Statement, particularly in Part 2 on society. So, of course, we'll link to that statement in the show notes for listeners. We should also reiterate that the problem with tyranny isn't so much that in a monopoly state, the worst tend to rise to the top, although that is certainly a genuine problem endemic to states. But rather, the foundational problem is that there is such a monopoly state at all. Since states are inherently tyrannous as monopolies on coercion and therefore necessarily seek to enforce an illegitimate claim over persons and property belonging to others. Carrie, how then do you address Kirk's principle of variety that involves inevitable legitimate inequalities, for instance, that of leadership or we might say hierarchies of authority in society? which some view as an argument for the inevitability of the state in a properly functioning society. Yeah, so it's true that in inter-individual relations and within various communities, there can be, and often is, leadership, or there are authority arrangements which can be legitimate forms of hierarchy. As Reformed Libertarians, we don't think hierarchy and or authority are bad things as such, of course. God has ordained legitimate offices of authority in marriage, family, church, civil governance, and in many other societal spheres. What some conservatives, not to mention progressives, often and ironically miss is the normative sort of variety or diversity God has created for society. The neo-Calvinist or reformational view of society we hold to, which is promoted by 19th and early 20th century reform thinkers such as Abraham Kuyper, Herman Bavinck, and especially around the mid-20th century, Herman Doivert, rejects both an individualistic view and a collectivist or even so-called communitarian view of society, which are the predominant perspectives. So if our view of society isn't individualistic nor collectivistic, how do we explain a better conception of society? First, let me say briefly how we address an individualistic view of society. I don't mention this in the article explicitly because Kirk's view seemed to depend more, ironically, on a sort of collectivism. Anyway, we acknowledge that, properly speaking, only individuals act. It is individual people who have goals and priorities and choose available means in pursuit of chosen ends. So that understanding might be called a praxeological or so-called methodological individualism, but it's not the same as an individualistic view of society. Now, against an individualistic view, we hold that society and various communal relations can't be rightly reduced to only inter-individual relations. Communities are real things themselves, genuine wholes, 
and they are not merely aggregates of individuals. Right. We recognize, too, that individuals are never mere parts of the communities to which they belong, and that neither communities, whether marriages, families, churches, or institutions of civil governance, among others, nor individuals, neither communities nor individuals are more basic than or have their origin in the other. Individuals and various communities are wholes themselves, respectively created and normed by God, each with its own integrity and reality. How then do you go on in the article to address a view of society in light of this? So the key is that society is not itself a single thing. Rather, society is a term by which we refer to a plurality of distinct kinds of relations, irreducible to each other. There are inter-individual relations, communal relations, and intercommunal relations. And while there are various hierarchies or forms of leadership in each of these kinds of societal relations, society as such does not properly exist as a single hierarchy. In fact, this idea of society as a single hierarchy is the dangerously mistaken view that lends itself to the monopolization of society by the state. Each distinct kind of community has a different basic kind of societal leadership. There isn't, normatively speaking, any kind of community that encompasses or leads all the other kinds of community. Some would view the state as this kind of leadership. They erroneously view the state as some sort of overall community that governs society overall. Likewise, it's erroneous to view the church in this kind of leadership as well. Societal governance overall, however, is a form of collectivism. Even if you think society has a variety of important parts or platoons, as Kurt called them, or so-called mediating institutions— even if you think such a state should be thoroughly transparent, accountable, limited, and highly localized, it's really just another form of collectivism. That sort of small state would be, of course, a good deal better than the United States government today, but it would still be a monopoly state and therefore inherently unjust. Yeah, that's right. And not only is there no single kind of community that rightly leads all the other kinds of community. But even within a specific kind of community, no particular community normatively has or gains a monopoly coercive rule over all the others of the same kind. Within each kind of community or societal sphere, there naturally exists a plurality of communities of that kind. So, for example, there isn't a single family that rules all families, but many families. There isn't, biblically speaking, a single church that rules the rest, even if they come together in general assembly or council, but many congregations. And again, normatively, in just civil governance, there's no monopoly government, but a variety of civil governance institutions. In the end, a state is not inevitable in a well-functioning society, 
because God has not normed society to be a singular thing ruled monopolistically by a single institution and certainly not based on aggression. Yes, that is indeed a better conception of society. It's one that genuinely takes created variety into account. It's a more thoroughgoingly consistent view of what is sometimes called sphere sovereignty. We'll link to a resource on that, and we hope listeners will look at the Reformed Libertarianism Statement on our website for more. And we'll end there for now. We hope listeners are inspired to read Carrie's article and consider the excellent responses she gives there in reply to certain prominent claims we've discussed for the state's supposed inevitability. Thanks for listening to the Reformed Libertarians podcast project of the Libertarian Christian Institute with Carrie Baldwin and Gregory Baus. See the website for each episode's show notes and sign up for our email list. Don't forget to rate and review Reformed Libertarians podcast on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcatcher. Find our email and social media on our contact page at reformedlibertarians.com.